Shrink Wrap Radio number 849. Luana Marquis, PhD, on transforming anxiety into power. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Dr. Luana Marquis, is the author of the new book, Bold Move A Three Step Plan to Transform Anxiety into Power. In addition, she's an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard and former president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Luana Marquis, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thanks for having me, David. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Well, I'm delighted to have you here as well. And uh, we're going to be talking about your new book, Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform your anxiety into power. Wow. <laughs> That's a bold statement right there. It is. It is. That's why I had to call it Bold Move because, you know, we all have lots of anxiety, but we don't have to be stuck. Yeah, yeah. And um, so one of the things I really like about this book is that you uh, – there's so much self-disclosure, so much self-disclosure in it, because uh, it's so easy for people to assume that well, here you are, an accomplished professor with all kinds of things, books to your credit, and so on, and you're at Harvard University, so life must be really easy for you, and you probably were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, so. Uh, we'll try to focus uh, not only on your accomplishments, but also be really helpful if if we can have you be as self-disclosure, as give self as much self-disclosure as possible as we go along about your own challenges, and and you know that you ha- had to overcome, and. Um, so before before we get into all of that, maybe you can give us uh, give our audience a bit of a sketch of your uh, professional of your training and your professional background. Sure, I'm currently associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. I'm a clinical psychologist at Mass General Hospital in Boston, and in. Now, my real passion is to teach skills to as many people as possible. So, for the last you know twenty years of my career, really, I've gone from the ivory tower back to the streets. And um, a lot of the work I do is training paraprofessionals. So individuals with no psychological training, um, the skills are in the box so that they can teach it to inner city youth. 
who themselves are having lots of trouble. So I've worked with young men coming out of prison, single mothers, um, immigrants, individuals that really have a lot of challenges, and I teach them the skills in the book. Wow, that is wonderful. That really addresses some of the uh, concerns that I might have had and, and asked you about. And we'll go into it in a little bit more depth as we go along. Um, maybe, now you grew up in Brazil. And again, I say people might have the fantasy that maybe since you're at Harvard, uh, you were born with a silver spoon, a wealthy family that could afford to send you to Harvard and so on. Oh, tell us what it was really like <laughs> you're growing up. What were the anxieties that you had to confront? Growing up was really hard. Um, my parents had my sister and I very young. Um, they were in their 20s. There were a lot of drugs and alcohol um, and a lot of domestic violence. And so as a kid, I was a very anxious kid. I realized, actually, as I was writing this book, um, I called my mom and I said to her, do you remember how I had those asthma attacks? And my mom is like, yeah, I would rush you to the hospital when you know you needed to get oxygen and you couldn't breathe. And, um, and I said to her, you know, I think I wasn't having asthma attack because once my father left and domestic violence ended, I never had an asthma attack again. So very likely what I had is panic attacks. And in fact, we know in the Latin culture, um, kids are more likely to talk about anxiety physically symptoms. And that's certainly what happened to me. Um, I was definitely a very anxious kid and um, had to overcome a lot to get to where I am. Oh, wow. Um, what's the difference between fear and anxiety? So I think about fear. Um, well, they both had the same kind of biological response, right? But when we're talking about fear, usually we're talking about real threats. So you're face to face with a lion, you're crossing the street and an ambulance is bearing down towards you. When we think about anxiety, there's other components that happen with anxiety. So you have the same fight, flight or freeze response. But anxiety also has a lot of thinking involved. So when you're really, really anxious, um, a lot of people I've worked with get stuck on their thinking. What if? What if I can't do this? What if I'm not good enough? What if my significant other doesn't love me enough? And those kind of thoughts tend to lead to a lot of more emotional symptoms of anxiety, heart pounding, dizziness, sweating. Um, and often people get stuck just avoiding anything that makes them anxious. Okay. And uh, so then somehow you, you got to, to Harvard. And uh, tell us about that journey. Uh, you know, how did that come about? I mean, that's, that's a big reach considering uh, the environment that you grew up in. It is. Yeah. So I, um, I always wanted to be an exchange student. For some reason in my brain, that was like the thing to do. Um, oh. And when I was 18, I had an opportunity to become an exchange student. I lived in a town called North Tanawanda, right outside of Buffalo. Um, I was there for a year. So when I came at 18 in my senior year of high school, I spoke no English. Um, and so the first six months were really hard. Um, Brazil is really hot. Buffalo is really cold. Um, but, you know, eventually um, I settled in my American family. To this day, I call them mom and dad. And they were just so welcoming. And I really found myself here. My, my grandmother jokes that I was born in the wrong country because <laughs> she's like, you're so much more American than you're Brazilian. Um, 
And so I wanted to stay. And my mom at that point said, you know, we can't do this. Um, and eventually I was able to come back. Uh, my stepdad at the time um, had some financial means and helped me with college a bit. And so then the rest, I just worked really hard. Like from the time I got to the U.S., my first job was making pizza so I could buy snow, um, snow um, boots for the winter because I didn't have any. Um, and I, you know, served as a research assistant, um, did my undergraduate at SUNY Buffalo and then continued there. And it wasn't until graduate school that I realized that like how much of a trauma history I had. It was the first time I started to work with somebody that had domestic violence. And I was like, oh, that is trauma. Yeah. You know, in growing up, I just, I, that's what I assumed happened. I knew a lot of my friends, also families um, had domestic violence. And so- I then got to graduate school and I just worked really hard and eventually got myself here at um, Harvard Medical School. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's clear that you are a very uh, hard worker. So what were some of the anxieties that you had to confront during that process? It sounds like hard work was uh, was part of your solution to, to kind of double down. As a matter of fact, yeah. is that a recommended way of dealing with anxiety? Or is that yes, a pathology? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I think our strengths are our weaknesses in many ways. And so I mm -hmm. think one strength that I learned from my mom was hard work. You know, she had three jobs to feed us. And so the idea of working hard um, was instilled on me since I was a little kid. And I think up to a point in my career that really helped um, it, to answer your question, you know, what were the strategies and the, the anxieties? I, at age 15, I think, is when my life started to change. I um, went to live with my grandmother in a bigger town. Uh, so I moved from Governador Valadares to Belo Horizonte. And I became really scared of strangers. I probably was developing what we now know as social phobia. And, you know, I just was studying it. And my grandmother noticed it. And one day said to me, let's go to the mall. And let's, let's eat Chinese food. I was so excited, had never had Chinese food. I was like, this is going to be so exciting. And then we get there and we get the food. And, and I remember this vividly. She said to me, let's go talk to that older gentleman there. He looks like he needs company. And I was like, I'm not doing this. Like I had all yeah. of the symptoms of anxiety. But my grandmother, without a college education, was really smart. And she didn't take no to an answer. And she just forced me to approach my fears instead of avoiding them. And that was the transition point um, to answer your question about sort of the fears. I think I'd still be in Brazil. I still would be an anxious kid had I not learned what amounted to exposure therapy for my grandmother. And, you know, eventually, I don't remember how, but eventually that changed the course of my life. And that's what I use day to day is whenever I get anxious to this day, I think about what are my values and how do I approach what matters the most and, you know, it's not without fear. Being bold is not being fearless. I think being bold is actually moving towards the things that matter and bringing that fear along with you. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, you, you talk, in the book, you talk about the importance of uh, your mother and her strength and perseverance under in adverse circumstances and your grandmother. And then you also talk about science. So somewhere along the way, uh, you got trained in uh, cognitive behavior therapy, and uh, you're very passionate about about that approach, right? There are other approaches out there for dealing with anxiety. Uh, 
So tell us about that journey and was the process of learning to be a cognitive uh, behavioral psychologist, therapist, was that anxiety arousing? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, cognitive behavior therapy is a form of therapy that really is about changing what we say to ourselves choosing to approach instead of avoiding um, things that makes us anxious. Um, And I I fell in love with CBT as an undergraduate. I took a class and I remember this idea that, you know, we could rewire our brain. Um, I think it was an early 80s study that was pre and post Prozac and pre and post cognitive behavior therapy for obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was a newer imaging. I think Scott Roush did that study actually. And I remember reading that as an undergraduate and thinking, oh, I can change my brain by thinking differently. Uh-huh. And, and it resonated a lot with what my grandmother would do. Every time I'd be anxious or afraid and I'd say, you know, this is the worst case ever. And she's like, well, is there a different way to think about this? And that question, is there a different way to see your world is at the core of cognitive behavior therapy. So in some ways, by the time I got to graduate school, you know, I've had so much CBT from my grandmother. And then as an undergraduate, I volunteer in a clinic and I they all practice CBT. And I was like, I want to do this. Like this, I just love the idea that people could get better and yeah. that they could become their own therapists. Yeah, yeah. So that sort of transitions us, I think, to this work that you described of moving from the ivory tower into working in the community and actually training non-professionals. So take us through that. That sounds like a wonderful program. So Community Psychiatry Pride is, is my research lab at Mass General, and it's a program for research and implementation and dissemination of evidence-based treatments. And I created this in 2014 when I got really frustrated working in, in Harvard in the Ivory Tower, seeing patients get better. But then I went into our community clinics and our community organizations and learned that no one had access, especially people like me from diverse settings, um, had access access to CBT. And so in 2014, I partnered with a nonprofit in the Boston area. And that's when we, we created and developed a CBT curriculum that really is designed to teach paraprofessionals just basic emotion regulation, being able to teach a kid to just even label their emotions. And I'm talking about kids who are coming out of prison, who are, are you know, not going to school, And we've been able to successfully implement this, not only in the Boston area, we created um, a large project with two organizations in Connecticut as well. We've worked in schools. And it's really a question of, I'm not asking them to become therapists. What I'm asking them is, can you learn skills, right? And can we teach those skills in a very basic way, almost as a little dosage of CBT to empower those youth to perhaps change their trajectory like I've been able to change mine? Yeah, yeah. It's incredible because one of the things that I'm always concerned about when I interview therapists of various stripes is how much of the world is not doesn't have access to therapists. And and what a basically what a western approach it is and uh uh, so in many parts of the world, there would be actual positive resistance. So by focusing on skills, th- that seems like a big part of it. And then training other people, non-professionals, to have those skills really seems like an important way to go. 
Yeah, I mean, that's why I did it. You know, before the pandemic, 80% of the, um, 80%, 20% of the U.S. population needed mental health care. And since the pandemic, the CDC is reporting 30 to 40% of the U.S. population is having global, having symptoms of anxiety and depression. The World Health Organizations suggested that 25% increase in depression since the pandemic. And, you know, I don't know the stats for trained professionals outside of the U.S., but in the U.S., it's 0.17% of the U.S. population. So the supply and demand is never going to close if we don't think about it more creatively and really teach skills to as many people yeah. that could deliver them. Yeah, yeah. Do you have uh, a vision or plans to go to other countries to help spread this more widely in the world? Um, yes. So um, I've, I have talked to nonprofits in India already. There is a program in Brazil that we are talking about, and I have a collaborator in Portugal that's also talking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so in your book, there are three skills. You, you talk about the title even has three in it, and the three skills or shift, approach, and align. So take us through those, if you will, along with any struggles that you had around each of those areas or that you tend to observe in people. Yeah. So before I even dive on the skills, I think the first thing that I talk in the book, which I actually didn't realize how much I was struggling with that is really this concept of avoidance that, you know, most of the people that come to me that I've worked with, organizations, individuals, you know, they want me to get rid of their anxiety, but anxiety itself is really not what gets us stuck. It's what we do when we are anxious. And for a lot of us, we walk away. Um, I um, had this tendency that I thought was super productive. You know, every time I got an email that upset me, I'd like respond really fast. And eventually, a mentor of mine sat me down and said, Luana, you really shouldn't be answering emails. And I was like, well, you know, I just want to be productive and I want to, you know, tell as it is. And she's like, you're your worst enemy. And I paused with that and thought about it. And I was like, why am I responding so quickly? Right? And it's because I was avoiding discomfort. Uh -huh. if, if they may upset me, I would react to try to avoid that discomfort. And yes, momentarily, you feel slightly better when you avoid, but long term, you get stuck, right? And I had to work really hard to reverse the reputation that I was reactive because I would literally react to emails. Um, but there are other ways people avoid as well. So, for example, my husband... Um, avoids by retreating. So if he's really anxious, he walks away from that discomfort. So if he got that email, he might just not open the email. Or he, he, one day he told me that he has two computer screens and he put it on the side. He's like, yeah, I didn't want to look at it. I just, you know, avoided it. And so the book, I start by talking a lot about avoidance and then I dive into three skills. Um, would it be helpful if I highlight them briefly? Or Yeah, sure. Sure. So shift is the idea of really widen our perspective. When we're anxious, most of us are in our emotional brain. It's hard to think straight because we're on that fight, flight, or freeze. Yep. Shift is really just shifting your perspective, learning to talk to yourself as if you're talking to a best friend, for example. So um, my book just released a week ago, and I've been practicing this every day because I wake up 
And I, I look at the Amazon sales and then my brain goes, oh my God, nobody loves your book. It's going to be awful. People are not going to like it. And then I have to pause. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I have to go, okay, Luana, if you were talking to your best friend, what would you say? And I'd say, okay, the book has only been out for a week. It's impossible for people to know a lot about it. Yeah. And so by talking to myself differently, then I'm able to sort of cool off my brain and shift my perspective. But does that make sense? Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. Um, so the Adam skills approach, and the idea here is that we were anxious, we walk away from discomfort. Approach is what I call opposite action. It's drawing on dialectical behavior therapy. And, you know, it's basically taking a baby step towards the thing that's making you anxious. So, for example, I had somebody send me a message this week that she's afraid of driving. But she started to read my book and she is just driving around the block in her house um, for a few for a few minutes every day to try baby to overcome steps. that fear. Yeah, baby steps, because right? Exactly. <laughs> baby steps exactly yeah. um and then finally align is really living a value-based life so that mm-hmm. you are aligning your daily activities with your values um and and for me this book comes out of alignment i really was in a place in my career that i wanted to be able to bring the skills to more people and so writing the book was my way to align impact with my daily actions it's interesting that uh, that values play a role in this approach because when I think of behaviorism, somehow I don't think of values. Yeah. yeah. So the third wave of cognitive behavior therapy, right, is where Stephen Hayes um, created acceptance and commitment therapy. I, I have interviewed him, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, he's wonderful, right? Yeah. And so that's where I draw the values piece is from his work. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He's he really. Uh, I was surprised by a, a, a presentation that he re- recently gave that just emphasized love uh, a lot, you know. And and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I think I think there's a kind of spiritual component. It seems like he's had a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because today, David, I was, um, I have a five-year-old at home and I said to him, I said, Diego, do you know who loves you the most? And he looked at me, he's five, and he says, I love myself the most. Then you love me second. And I thought it was so insightful for him to understand that self-love matters and, yeah. you know, you need to care for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting in all your busy career that somehow you got married. You want to tell, share that story with us? And also entering into marriage can be a very anxiety arousing circumstance. Yeah, we, um, so I met my husband on a match um, and we've been together for 10 years. We've been married for 10 years. Um, he is a professor at Boston University School of Public Health. And so I think the first thing is that our values are very aligned from time zero. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things that happened is we got married in, in a church in Boston that part of the 
process to get married in this church is that you have five sessions with their reverend oh, yeah. to just talk about what marriage looks like. And to this day, we talk about this. We really loved it because we got to talk about some of the things that gets couples into trouble, you know, finances, how much time you need apart. You know, um, I tend to be a lot more outgoing. He tends to be a lot more introvert. Um, but he is my rock. I, I couldn't have written this book without him. Um, he's just an incredible, incredible partner, a supporter, a cheerleader. Um, he's just everything. Well, that's it's, great. it's a best decision I've made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that you say in the book is uh, anxiety is painful, but it's not what's keeping you stuck. Yeah, what's keeping us stuck is, is avoidance, is that quick fix, is when you get home from work and you're stressed and instead of exercising, you reach for a drink or when you're really upset at a partner and instead of having an honest conversation, you just bottle it up or staying in a relationship that no longer functions well for you or a job and continue to do it. That's what keeps us stuck and that's what maintains that anxiety because the longer you stay in a situation it's not working, the more anxious you feel. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this uh, approach to therapy is really an approach to life, and it uh, so it can be part of marriage therapy, even right? For sure. I mean, or, I, I or actually vocational counseling, or just about anything. It really, I, I love how you're saying this, David. It is a, it's an approach for life. I mean, the, I talk about this so openly in the book, and I'm glad that you saw that as well. You know, I use these skills every day just because I'm trained as a cognitive behavior therapist. doesn't mean that my, my brain sometimes doesn't say things to me that are not so nice, or there are not moments that I'm not scared or fearful. Um, but the skills help me to continue to push towards what matters. It continues to get me unstuck. Um, and it's not like I don't have anxiety. I still have anxiety. Yeah, I yeah. always will have it. But I don't see myself as an anxious person. I just have anxiety, and anxiety comes along with me. It seems to me, too, also it's very congruent with meditation. Like I'm thinking of mindfulness meditation where you become aware of your, of your emotions and, and your thoughts and so on. But you create a, a distance of non, non-judgment towards all that. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you, you know, I, I didn't add much about meditation in my book, but I'm a firm belief. I, you know, there's a yoga center uh, right outside of Boston called Kripalu, and I've been 20 times myself. I love Kripalu and this idea of being present, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's word of, you know, yeah. being present non-judgmentally is so important and so powerful and now backed by science. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And let's see, what else do I want to ask you about here? Oh, another another point that you that you make that I think is really important is because uh, I've been taken by the idea that the brain is a prediction machine, and uh, you know there are different models of of the psyche, and and that's one of the current ones. And um, say a bit more about that. 
Yeah, I think the brain has two functions. I mean, there's many functions, but two that I think are primary, which is to predict and to protect, right? Um, the protection is is our fight, flight, or freeze response. And it's an automatic response. So if we sense threat, we will, you know, be on fight, flight, or freeze. And then it needs to be able to predict what's next, right? So um, when we learn about fruits, right, you eventually get to a red fruit, a certain shape, it's an apple, and then you don't ever have to think about it again, right? It, it, the brain predicts very quickly, um, which is amazing. It allows us to have this conversation, allows us to do things very efficiently. But because it's a predictive machine, sometimes it's not updated, so the example I give in the book is growing up with as much trauma as I had at about age 10, my brain basically used the filters of I'm not enough. So even when good things would happen to me, my brain would find a way to prove to me that I wasn't enough. Um, I one time had an article in a major um, psychological journal get accepted. And it was so strange. Like immediately, my first thought, David, was, oh, we only got published because the co-authors are really smart. I'm not uh -huh. smart. Uh -huh. Right now, now yeah. I'm, a, I'm a professor at Harvard Medical School. Um, and, and if I was talking to a patient of mine, I'd say, wait a minute, like, stupid <laughs> people don't go to Harvard. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. Like, that, that, the two don't add. But the brain is a predictive machine, and it took me years to really rewire that part. So today, very seldom that thought comes up, but wow, it does. And then I have to like pause and be like, nope, I don't believe this anymore. That's the yeah. old narrative. Yeah, so many people cope from that, cope with that anxiety, and that I think is also uh, known as the imposter syndrome, right? The feeling that. Mm -hmm. Oh, if, once they discover how dumb I am, <laughs> that'll be the end. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. I was one of those people. Um, and, you know, by shifting my perspective today, I can really say, no, I'm good as I am right now. I can yeah. do a lot more in my life, but as it is, I'm good enough. Yeah, me too. I think I would definitely went through that during graduate school and, uh, as, as some of my friends got kicked out for one reason or another, I remember actually approaching one of the people in charge of getting rid of dropping people from the program. How come you're not dropping me? I'm good friends with that person. Whatever's wrong with them is wrong with me. So I was so uh, fused, fused with them, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and that faculty person said, David, you're not the same as he is. <laughs> you're you're a different mm -hmm. person. You have different different skills and so on. So that was an important piece of learning for me. Mm -hmm. That is so, and that's why I talk so much, David, in the book about this idea that we need to learn to talk to ourselves as if we're talking to our best friend or mentor, right? Because he looked at you and saw the true you, not what your brain was predicting you to be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by hearing that, I bet you felt better. Yeah, yeah. Also, the thing that's been very helpful for me is interviewing uh, highly accomplished people such as yourself. <laughs> this, this podcasting has allowed me to, you know, to uh, have conversations with uh, all kinds of high-powered people and high, with high-powered credentials and so on. And so there must be something that I've got down that I can do that. <laughs> so that's reassuring no, it, to me. Yeah. 
You have a fantastic podcast. I'm just so honored to be talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, there was, uh, there was a, something that you have at the conclusion of the book that I think is interesting, and I don't recall where it comes from, but maybe you can take us through that. Becoming bold by, becoming, by being the water, not the rock. Yeah, so this comes from my grandmother. Um, she used to talk about this idea that there's two sort of kinds of people in life um, when change happens. So whenever you're in transition, um, there are the kind of people that are more like the rock. They just basically want to stay put. They don't want to change. They want what their reality is. And they double down on sort of like being where they are. And then there are people that are more like the water, that they, they go around. So obstacles come, they go around, they go over, they find a way to flexibly continue in their journey, right? The water is never stopped. And I use this as an analogy to talk about, you know, being bold is not being fearless. Being bold is this idea of like understanding your true north. What are your values in your life? What matters the most? And then find a way to flexibly have a life towards those values so that when life gets hot, and it does for all of us, then you find a way to more flexibly move instead of just getting yourself further stuck. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's, that's like a koan. And you got that from your, your grandmother. Yeah, wonderful <laughs> wisdom there. And uh, so one of the questions that I often ask my guests is, uh, you know, there's a lot to be anxious about right now it feels yeah. like the world is going to hell and uh, falling apart and you know and I don't I need not enumerate all the sources of fear and anxiety around that what is what is your advice to people of how to not become overwhelmed by all these the dire, that our predictive brain <laughs> looks ahead <and> gets scared. <laughs> For sure. Um, the world is upside down, right? And so the way I manage it is, is really by controlling what I can control and understanding there are many things that are out of my control. So really, the only certainty we have in many ways is uncertainty. Like you and I don't know if we wake up tomorrow. We'd like to wake up tomorrow, but we don't know. Yeah. And so I find ways to sort of carve out my life in a way that I'm taking control of the things I can. I'm helping society. That's why I do community work. I want to be part of building better and stronger yes. communities. Yes. You know, I and have this dream that. of, yep. Yep. yeah, and that's my dream. Like my dream is, can we bring this to as many people in the world so that people themselves have more power to change their systems around them? Um, but there's a certain level of, uncertainty that we all have to deal with. And so we control what we can and what we can't. We have to just sit with that discomfort. And I think where meditation and mindfulness comes really handy there. Yes. Yes. Well, is there anything else you'd like to get in here that uh, some other point that you want to make about your book? Uh, uh, why should people buy this book? I know you want people to buy it. Why should they? I do want people to buy it, but um because I, I firmly believe that the skills in the book can help people live better, more fulfilling, 
bolder lives. And it doesn't have to be major bold moves. It can be a little bold move, but for you to, I want people to thrive. I want people to feel like, especially for people that grew up like I did. I was talking to somebody today who had um, her own share of domestic violence herself. And so I shared the stories of my mom and how, you know, I overcame it and was able to break this cycle. And and she was so excited about the idea that she could perhaps, you know, overcome it. And so I want all of you to just have your best life. And that's why you should buy the book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a good pitch for the book. Uh, Dr. Luana Marquez, thank you so much for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you so much, David. It's really an honor. Loved your questions. Thank you. My recent guest, Harvard psychologist Luana Marquise, author of the new book, Bold Move, A Three-Step Plan to Transform Anxiety into Power, was yet another delight to interview. Her book draws heavily on her training as a cognitive behavior therapist. She is a great advertisement for her book, inasmuch as she exudes so much bold confidence that you'd never think she had an anxious moment in her life. You would be completely wrong to draw such a conclusion. In fact, one of the things I like most about her book is her generous self-disclosure that runs throughout. Yes, she is a highly accomplished Harvard professor and author, but she was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She reveals her parents had a very traumatizing, dysfunctional marriage. Her father was abusive and left them when she was quite young. She actually carried quite a bit of trauma into her adult life, as she was to realize only many years later. Growing up in a poor crime and drug-ridden city in Brazil, she credits three sanity-preserving factors that got her through. One was her gutsy mother, who was a tireless single mom, who modeled love and perseverance. Second was her grandmother, who taught her to shun avoidance and to boldly face whatever obstacles were in her path. The third force she credits is science, namely the science of the brain and the behavioral science she studied and committed herself to during her undergraduate and graduate years. An incidental consequence of my conversation with Luana is the reminder that I need to let go of my outdated bias against behavior therapies. Behavioral approaches have evolved enormously in the years since my own graduate days. Behaviorists now embrace the importance of our internal lives, along with the findings of neuroscience. CBT has a lot in common with mindfulness meditation, and as Luana emphasizes in her book, values play a strong role in the three-step approach she promotes in her book. In fact, I'm most impressed by how value-driven she is in both her personal and professional life. When she began her work in the Boston community, she quickly realized her ivory tower Harvard approach needed some serious retooling to meet her real-life clients where they lived. Many had not much schooling, 
and she had to focus on developing a more accessible vocabulary and emphasis on skill development. She's been teaching behavioral skills to non-professional volunteers. My impression is she has created a cadre of former patients who've graduated to function as mental health workers themselves. This puts me in mind of the professionals in Africa who discovered that they could be most helpful by drawing on the traditionally accepted indigenous helpers in the community, namely grandmothers. And that led to the grandmother's bench, where people could chat with an elder wise person about their troubles. Similarly, Luana has a passion to create a healthier world by using her knowledge to empower people in their local communities with the skills to help their neighbors. She realizes that there is so much trauma out there, more than traditional therapy can affordably reach. I admire her passion and grit and her determination to make a difference. As she says in her book, Anxiety is painful, but that's not what's keeping you stuck. So if you are feeling stuck, I highly recommend Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power by my new friend and hero, Luana Marquez, Ph.D. Dr. Dave, this is Manuel Lopez. I've been donating to your podcast for a while now, and I wanted to read this message. I'm not a formal psychologist or therapist, but I wonder why people behave the way they do. Many of your interviews provide insight about this and many other topics. I consider your podcast an incredible resource presented in an easy, entertaining manner. For those reasons, I will continue to donate because it seems like a small price to pay. I urge anyone else listening to contribute and make sure this podcast continues to be available for all of us to enjoy. Our contributions can let Dave know how much we appreciate his work. Well, Dr. Dave, I wish you well and hope your podcast continues for as long as possible. Thank you, longtime listener and contributor Manuel Lopez. I'm glad you found so much of value in these interviews. Thanks for your long-term commitment to supporting my work and for encouraging others to follow your sterling example. Once again, time to shrink-wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, Harvard professor and therapist Dr. Luana Marquez, for telling us about her book, Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power, and for the inspiring work she's doing in the world. Next week, my London collaborator and blogger, Isabella Clark, will be interviewing MIT professor and philosopher Kiran Setia, Ph.D., who has been reflecting on the reality that life is hard. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious Earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.